Hi, I'm William Kent Kruger, and you should be watching Crew Reviews. Sean, Mike, let's yes. raise a glass. William Kent Kruger in the house today. Howdy, howdy. You know, I, if I'd known beer was a part of the process, I'd, I'd be down here toasting you with a line in Kugels. Oh, <laughs> summer Barry Weiss is good stuff, I'm telling you. Uh, so Fox Creek, Kent, uh, is the 18th installment of your Cork O'Connor series. It hits bookshelves August 23rd, uh, 2022. First off, congrats on such an amazing milestone, 18 books in the series. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and Sean, Mike, and I are not surprised by the resounding reviews of already that's already received, and nor would we be surprised if this isn't another New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. um, but with that being said, would you mind giving our, our viewers a, a teaser of what's in store for them when they crack open this book? Sure, but before I do that, I just, I don't want to be a bad guest, uh, but you're incorrect, Chris. It's actually what? number it's number 19 in my series. Is it 19? 19? Oh my gosh. I see I pride myself in doing my due diligence when I looking up pe people's backgrounds and stuff. And uh that's a strike one against me. No, that's okay. Occasionally I lose track myself. But 19 <laughs> 19 books, that's yeah. Holy It's smoke. even better. There you go. <laughs> Congratulations on that though. Thank you. So what uh, yeah, what can they expect? Um, well, they can expect everything that uh, readers who have uh, followed my series since the beginning can always expect. Um, it's going to be um, a suspenseful read. It's going to involve um, elements of the Ojibwe culture. It's going to be set in the Great North Woods. Cork O'Connor is going to be a, a major character. And in Fox Creek, the other focus is on what is probably reader's uh, favorite character in the series, the ancient Mide, Henry Malou. And this is the story of Henry Malou as he, at 105 years old, mm -hmm. um, leads uh, two women into the boundary waters to escape some ruthless mercenaries uh, who are tracking them for reasons they don't really understand. And Mulu has to use all his wiles to try to st stay one step ahead of these uh, these ruthless killers. Corporal Carter, of course, is doing his best to uh, to see if he can rescue them. But uh, winter storm descends and darkness descends, and uh, Cork really begins to fear greatly that uh, he's not going to be able to save the people he loves. Love the uh, the different points of view, and sp uh, specifically um, the old wise man, 105 years old. Um, but so, as you've corrected me, Fox Creek is the 19th installment in the Cork O'Connor series. Uh, and to the few readers who may not know you or your work, it may seem that they they couldn't jump into the series uh, with this book being the 19th. But that's not that's not true for this book, or really for the whole series. 
like another author we love to read, Brad Thor, readers can jump into the Cork O'Connor series pretty much at any any point, including this book. Um, that being said, how important is is it to you and aspiring writers in general when writing series to give old readers something new and interesting with connections to previous books, while also ensuring that this this book can be a potential starting off point for new readers? Aye, there's the rub, Chris. Um, you have to make sure that you are going to satisfy readers who've been with you all along and give them what they expect in your series. Um, they follow you because they've fallen in love with the characters, with the setting, uh, with uh, your voice as a storyteller. So you have to be able to offer them all of those things. Uh, but if you don't <laughs> offer them something new, they're going to get a little tired of you. And, you know, as a writer, you want to try to discover a, a new approach, something different that you can offer the reader, a different way maybe of telling the story, um, just to keep you interested. You know, 19 books. If I hadn't paid a lot of attention to how to, to do things differently and, and challenge myself as a writer, I'd be bored writing this series, but that's not true for me at all. I still get stoked every time I sit down to write a new Cork O'Connor novel. It's always a fine line, however, when you're trying to uh, trying to decide how much of the backstory to give the reader in terms of the characters and the relationships. And, uh, you know, are you giving them too much? Are you giving them too little? Uh, most writers of the long running series, me included, um, we uh, we count a lot on our editors to give us some guidance. Uh, you, you need to explain a little bit more here. You need to pull back a little bit there. I, I don't care how many books you've published. <laughs> every, every writer needs a good editorial eye. <laughs> True. Well, a great thriller relies not just on conflict, but stakes. And in this novel, the stakes for Cork couldn't be much higher. Um, with Rainy in the midst of this plot, Cork is fighting not just an enemy. He's not just fighting the inherent danger of the landscape and the climate, but he's fighting, he's fighting his own worst fears as he goes about this. Can you share a little bit about the genesis of this particular tale? Yeah. Readers who uh, are familiar with my series may remember that number 18, Chris, number 18 in the series. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, no, it was number 17. Number 18 in the series was Lightning Strike, which was a prequel. Number 17 in the series, which was also a contemporary story. At the end of that book, I left Henry Malou in a really precarious situation. At the end of that story, um, Henry Malou and Stephen O'Connor both have had visions of Henry's death. And, uh, and so I needed somehow to pick up that thread and figure out how, what to do with it, how to resolve it. Um, I gave myself a little extra time because between those two books, uh, I, uh, I published my standalone, This Tenderland, and then the prequel, Lightning Strike. So I had some time to think about it, but honest to God, when it came time to write the book, I still didn't know what the hell I was going to do. I didn't know if I was going to kill Henry. Was I going to save him? What was I going to do with Maloof? So a lot of this story involved coming up with a line that would allow me to feature Henry um, and, you know, if killing Henry was what it took, I wanted to make sure that I led into his death in a remarkable way. Honestly, I didn't know as I began the story how it was going to end. Wow. Exactly. 
Dude, I love that. Which is odd for me. Usually I know I know how I'm going to begin the, the mystery, how I'm going to end the mystery, yeah. and why. But in this one, I wasn't sure at all. I felt my way along uh, in this story a, a good deal. Hmm. Your, your comment about visions is kind of a good place for a segue for me. Um, the intermixing of native lore and fable with a visceral real-world plot is a delicate balance that few can pull off and yet they're blended here to tremendous effect and seamlessly knitted together in a way that never pulls the reader out of the reality you've created so as you're writing and, and, and maybe more significantly as you're revising a story like fox creek how do you weigh that balance to ensure you're achieving your goals um is there is there a lot of adjustment on the back end to make sure that you know you're not too what's the word um in, into a ethereal world uh, rather than the actual you know flesh and blood world we're in actually it comes pretty naturally as i'm creating the story hmm. um those elements that uh, seem otherworldly um you know i got I, I gotta tell you uh a lot of the elements that i include that seem to be um spiritual in nature and maybe um peculiar to native culture um are elements of life that i have believed in all my life hmm. um i my mother had visions my daughter has visions and so when i talk about the visions that stephen or henry malou have i absolutely believe that people have visions it's not a difficult leap for me in, in terms mm -hmm. of capability and so weaving them into the texture into the fabric of the story is not difficult for me to do at all um I always try to couch it in such a way that it it is organic to what's occurring in the story. Um, I try to be be really conscious of that. I don't want it to be something that pops out of nowhere. Um, did, does that help at all, Sean? And I, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I really appreciate how you couched that question. You said you seamlessly include seamlessly. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny because when you when I phrase a question that way, I I, I hate the the connotation that it's easy because nothing about this is easy. Yeah, um, yeah. But it just it it did. I never did feel like it was forced in there. It was very organic to this story, and I just uh, I was fascinated by that that process. And I just wondered if if you ever like felt like you were going too far in one direction or the other. You know, because I've been writing the Cork O'Connor series for over a quarter of a century now, hmm. uh, and there are. Chris, 19 books in the 19. series. 19. 19. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> 19. And, and from the get-go, from my first novel in the series, Iron Lake, um, I tapped into um, I tapped into the spiritual world. Uh, and so it's not, it's not something that surprises readers. It's not something I feel uncomfortable with. Um, and it's not like I'm always looking for ways, uh, how can I include the, what, the mythical Wendigo in this story, or how, how can I include visions, or how can I do this or that or the other thing? It, it, anymore, it just kind of rises naturally out of the story as I create it. Hmm. Hey, Ken, uh, Mike, can I just, can I just yeah, yeah, ask one yeah, follow-up question? I, Ken, I wonder if you, if you ever got any pushback from your editor about uh, this, this, this seems too mystical, or this doesn't you know, this may not float, or is your editor so in tune with, with your style of writing now after 19 books that uh, it just, you know, it is what it is. Like this just works. It just, it's just, it's just good. 
Well, I have to tell you, uh, I had five different editors for the first first three books in the series. It was, wow. It was oh, door. Uh, <laughs> I think I scared them all away or something. <laughs> Actually, actually, they all went off to become writers, uh, and I, I oh. sort of believe that they, they figured if if Kruger can, can publish something, anybody can publish something. Uh, taught them everything. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I, uh, and because I wasn't really able to establish uh, a significant relationship, really, with any of those author um, uh, editors. It wasn't until I acquired a woman named Sarah Branham as my editor, and I had Sarah for 15 years, and we were really copacetic. Um, uh, and she she never uh, pushed back on the uh, otherworldly elements of the Cork O'Connor stories. Uh, currently, my editor is the is is the head of the editorial department, Adria uh, Peter Borland. And he's just a stellar guy, and we grok, we connect quite well. And so I've never had any kind of uh, uh, an indication from Peter that he has any difficulty with uh, those elements of my work. Hmm. Awesome. Well, readers, well, however, are a different matter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> occasionally, I'll read, I'll have a, a response from a reader that's something like, "Oh, give me a break." <laughs> Uh, well, everybody's an expert and, out and there. And then I have to explain to them. Yeah. Well, when I was reading this, you know, you, you know, when you're 105 years old, you've accumulated quite a bit of knowledge and experience and wisdom over time. Uh, but again, it, it did feel like it was beyond just experience, that it was the the culture, uh, the, the old ways, you know, the old ways, uh, you know, the Native American uh, culture. And so... And you talked a minute ago about how you felt that, you know, you've had this lifelong affiliation with this, you know, with the visions and things like that. Do you think somebody in their 20s or 30s, even from a Native American society that maybe has been encroached upon by modern, you know, uh, society, do you think that they could, they could learn those skills? Or do you think that's just something that's innate that you kind of weave into your own life, uh, regardless of even your age? Well, it may be unique in that it's been a part of my life uh, um, as far back as I can remember, but that doesn't mean that uh, that people who haven't had that experience can't uh, open their minds and embrace that which they have never themselves experienced. And isn't that the beauty of literature? I mean, yeah. stories stories uh, are windows onto other experiences, other cultures, other ways of seeing the world. And if you're a reader, um, you're going to, I think, naturally be open to those kinds of things. Hmm. I don't know. I, I give readers probably a lot more credit than they deserve. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the difference between a good storyteller and a great storyteller like yourself is that a great storyteller expertly traverses the delicate line of keeping readers slightly confused, but curious, as opposed to confused and bored or confused and angry, and then the reader just closes the book and throws in the garbage or something. But for upcoming authors like me and Sean and Mike and a lot of our viewers, how do you do that? How do you know that your story you're writing doesn't just sound good in your own head, but it will also intrigue and tantalize readers and make them confused, curious? I wish I could say I knew exactly how to do that and that I have after, uh, now I've got 22 novels out there, uh, that I um, that I don't worry about anymore, but I'm constantly worried 
about making sure that the pace of a story moves, you know, pace is everything in a book. Yeah. yeah. If you, if you, if the pace drags, my God, as a reader, uh, you're going to, you know, really be tempted to put that book down. Right. So, um, I have, <laughs> I have learned over the years, all kinds of different ways to keep a reader in suspense. And it's not always visceral danger that has to be involved. Conflict is involved. Um, asking questions that you, you don't answer. That's a, a good way of keeping readers in suspense. Um, and so I try to use all of the tools in my, uh, all of the weapons in my arsenal to, <laughs> uh, to, um, to make the story, particularly the pace, keep the pace of the story moving. But then, then here's the the issue: if you're gonna, you, if you focus only on pace, you're gonna end up writing a two dimensional story. Yeah. All of those characters are gonna have no depth to them, and readers aren't gonna care. You know, then it just becomes an academic question: uh, whether you make it to the end, who, who cares? Right. So you have to, along with that, um, that intriguing storyline, give them an intriguing emotional story as well. And, and for me, it's not that difficult with the Coca-Cola stories because it's always about the personal relationships. Um, <laughs> I do get a lot of distance by putting Quark or the people he loves in danger. I, <laughs> I do that a lot. I have beat up the O'Connor family tremendously. <laughs> and they just keep coming back for more. But it's that emotional depth in a story that really, it, it makes the story human. It makes the reader care. And that at the end, when the reader closes the book, that's what they're going to remember, how emotionally satisfying that story was. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, I came to your work um, through your standalone novels, This Tenderland and Ordinary Grace. I was late to the party, um, which are simply two of the finest novels of the past decade. And then, and these guys know I've, I've talked about This Tenderland in particular a ton, but Ordinary Grace is brilliant as well. But David Brown sent me this arc and I, I, I became a fan instantly. But now that I'm well into the Cork O'Connor series, still have several to go, but... And for our viewers who may not be familiar, can you tell the story of how you came to the name of Cork O'Connor when you launched the series with Iron Lake? Because I think it's a great story. <laughs> sure. I get asked this a lot. Mm. Um, here's the honest to God truth. <laughs> long before I knew I was going to write a Cork O'Connor story, long before I knew I was going to write any kind of a story, I had in mind a character that I might want to write about. And in the in the very beginning, all I knew about this guy was that he was going to be so resilient that no matter how far life pushed him down, he would always bob back to the surface and his name would be Cork. <laughs> Swear to God. Swear to God. Now, I told that to an audience not too long ago and some wise ass in the audience said, why didn't you just call him Bob? Bob. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, so that's where Cork began. Um, and then when I decided I was going to set my work in the, uh, in the North Country of Minnesota and took a really, really good look at the North Country, I realized that you can't, uh, you can't tell a true story set in the North Country without including the Ojibwe as an element of your work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's powerful. Huh. So I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to include the Ojibwe in what I do. 
Now, when you're a writer of fiction, uh, what is it you're looking for? You're looking for conflict because it's conflict that drives great yeah. stories. And when I looked up north, that's all I saw was conflict. Conflict in the weather, conflict in that rugged landscape, conflict in the cultures trying to live together and often not doing a very good job of it. Um, but then when I thought, you know, more specifically about the issue of conflict, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to create a character who, in who he is, could mirror the conflict of the two dominant cultures up there, white and Ojibwe. So I decided Cork was going to be of mixed heritage. Then the question was, um, he's going to be part Ojibwe. What will be that European ancestry part? And in the North Country of Minnesota, you could be Ojibwe Swede, Ojibwe Finnish, Ojibwe Slav, Ojibwe German, Ojibwe Russian, you name it. Hmm. Uh, a variety of reasons I decided to make Cork Ojibwe and Irish, and Cork became very naturally Cork, Corcoran O'Connor. Uh -huh. That was the evolution of Cork. Very cool. I, I, I noticed you didn't mention any Italians up in the North Country. <laughs> <laughs> they hate the snow. God, no, 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 no. We've, we've got a ton of, uh, of Italians in, in Northern Minnesota. Gino's Pizza Rolls, that's from Northern Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, so there's a more so than ever before, it seems like the, the, the need for an author to get, quote, things get it right is more so because there's so many social media experts nowadays apparently um has it always been more important for you to get the story of the native culture right for your audience or for your friends and acquaintances who you've come to know over the years uh, who are native american i mean i can sort of guess but which one did you feel more compelled to portray correctly well, the truth about most white people is they know absolutely nothing about the native cultures they live shoulder to shoulder with, which right. was true of me in the beginning. When I made my decision to include the Ojibwe culture, I knew absolutely nothing about them, but I was a cultural anthropology major in college. And so the idea of learning about this culture, not my own, uh, was uh, an exciting prospect. And you know, I have to admit, in the beginning, I, I uh, approached it in a very academic way. I, I began by reading. I read everything I could get my hands on about the Ojibwe. And in the course of my research, I began to meet members of the Ojibwe community and form relationships that over the years have become important friendships. Um, so, uh, so now when I have a, a Cork manuscript ready to go, if my deadlines will allow, I give it to at least one, but usually two of my Ojibwe friends to, to read and vet for me. So I haven't said anything that's too stupid or worse offensive. Right. So if you want to know the truth, uh, it's more important to me that a native reader who looks at the story is not upset by what I, how I handle uh, the native culture. Um, and, uh, and I rely heavily on my Ojibwe friends and all of the research that I constantly do to make sure that that's, that's the case. I, I am painfully aware every time I sit, I have no native blood in me whatsoever. Mm. I'm painfully aware every time I sit down to write a story in the Cork series that I'm a white guy trespassing on a culture, not my own. Mm. So I try to get it right. And one of the things that I try to do with my work is to, um, is to put to rest a lot of the stereotypes that many white readers are going to have about the native population. Yeah. Ken, I, I'm curious, um, you said you did a bunch of research, you talked to people, you read some stories. Are there any other fiction books that deal with that Native American tribe? Oh, yeah. Um, does the name Louise Erdrich mean anything to you? No. 
Yeah. And National Book Award winning Pulitzer Prize nominated author out of Minnesota, who is in fact uh, Anishinaabe. Um, So she does a terrific job. We have another fine writer here, uh, Christine Stark, who writes about the Ojibwe community. We had a a wonderful storyteller, Shanab storyteller, a guy named Jim Northrup, who passed away a few years ago, who who wrote sketches and stories uh, set on the res. And if you want a true, authentic Ojibwe voice, you should read him. We have a great mystery writer, uh, up and coming mystery writer here in Minnesota, Marcy Rendon, who, uh, whose um, protagonist, Cash Black Bear, is, uh, is Anishinaabe. So yeah, there are lots of uh, writers who, and who in fact are native, um, writing about their cultures these days and writing mysteries about their cultures these days. Beautiful. You Fantastic. know, if you don't know the work of uh, David Wyden, uh, whose first novel, Winter Count, Winter Count. Came out, what, two years ago, maybe three mm-hmm. years ago, one of the best debut novels in the mystery genre I've read in, in decades. Oh, jeez. It's, it's on my shelf, and it, I have not cracked it yet, but not, not because I'm not interested, just because of the show we have a very large <laughs> to be read pile, but yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I read the background of that and and the critiques of that and immediately bought it just so you know yeah. the moment i saw it it's terrific but it's um it's definitely on my list now um so so ken from from the small screen to the big screen it seems like hollywood is finally developing uh new content i mean they are doing some remakes of oh my gosh what are they what are they uh roadhouse oh, oh no, don't, please don't, don't even mention that uh so but but so Hollywood, we you know we've been treated to Michael Conley's Bosch series, C.J. Box, the Big Sky, and the Joe Pickett series. Uh, Mark Graney's Gray Man, Jack Horst Terminal List, and there's a whole bunch of other stories that are being adapted. And and I know Sean, Mike, and I they would agree with me that uh, your Cork O'Connor series yeah. would make for a perfect like eight part series on one of the streaming services. Right. And then there's also the, your standalones, uh, this Tenderland and Ordinary Grace, as as Sean was mentioning before. They just seem like perfect Hollywood projects. So. I wonder if there's any news you could tell us or tease our audience about um, that maybe Hollywood's come knocking on your door. Yeah. No. <laughs> what, I really thought guys, this was going to go a different way. <laughs> what do you guys want to represent me in Hollywood? Uh, no, I I think, I've been dealing <laughs> with Hollywood since the first Cork O'Connor novel came out. Uh, it's been optioned. The uh, stories have been optioned. The series has been optioned. It's been shopped around. And, uh, and nobody has bought. Uh, so it's, you know, that's where it stands. They keep, we keep getting, uh, we keep getting nibbles, uh, but uh, nothing on the Cork O'Connor series at this point, uh, which, you know, I got it. I got to be perfectly honest with you. I don't give a. Yeah. yeah. A rat's ass. <laughs> a rat's ass. Thank you very much. I don't give a rat's ass. They're going to screw you know, it up anyway. You know, the I, I write books that I'm really, really, really happy with. And if they if they make a series that I'm not really, really, really mm. happy with, where where will that leave me? Oh, I, I don't see. need money. Yeah. I don't need to expand my readership. I'm not really concerned about that. If the right person, uh, you know, knocks on my door and uh, and we sit down and I and I believe this this guy or this woman um, knows how to maintain the heart of uh, my work, yeah, maybe. Now that said, um, um, 
Ordinary Grace has been optioned and a screenplay is currently being written um, in a, as a many parts, a many part uh, episode sure. series for one of the streaming platforms. Um, but don't hold your breath on that because you know, really projects in Hollywood are difficult to get off the ground. Uh, we've been, we've dealt with, I think, four different production companies now for the rights to uh, this <clears throat> land. Wow. But it's such a special story to me. I mean, it, my heart was so deeply invested in that story that I want to make sure the right person has has the opportunity to do something with it. And I just haven't I haven't connected yet with that person. Yeah. So that's where we stand. Amen to that. Um, yeah. And if Michael Bay options it, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bay. Michael Michael Bay's this tender land. That would be something. <laughs> But, but, you know, you, what you're just to follow up on what Chris was saying, I, I'm curious as to how recently the Cork O'Connor thing had, had gone out, because it, it does seem like they are starting to figure out that the author's vision is really going to make it a successful project. I mean, more yeah. and more and more, you're going to see, you're seeing semi-faithful to faithful ad adaptations, and which gives me hope that if somebody does come along, um, you know, that they would do it right, but that's a coin toss the other aspect that you were when you were talking i was thinking about is i don't know if you've seen the i just watched the movie prey which is the predator uh prequel and the pretty much the entire cast outside of the white people the, the small group of white people that were necessary for the plot were first nations um native americans it was pretty pretty cool to see hey hey sean i uh, i i looked at the trailer for that because i got to tell you honestly I was a big fan of Predator, the first one. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and th this looked like an intriguing take on it. What did you think? I liked it a lot. I, I told the guys yesterday. I said this this is right. Like I, I enjoyed the first Predator as well, and that was it. Um, this this has both the spirit of it and um, a, an originality to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, but it, it it's it's really, I I, I loved it. I thought I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, very few movies are perfect, so I'm sure I could nitpick if I wanted to. But I thought it was really, really well done. Yeah, good. Thanks for the recommendation. I'll check Absolutely. it out now. Yeah. So you just mentioned a minute ago that you didn't know anything about the Ojibwe until you started to research your book. Well, they are people I knew nothing about until your stories. Right. Since then, I've learned a decent amount of their influence, uh, not only on the region the stories are set, but on the language and words we have come to know very well. Um, can you share a little bit about that? And maybe can you tell us something about that culture that you've come to know so well that we could all learn a hell of a lot from? Well, here's here's what you can learn a hell of a lot from, not just the Anishinaabeg, but pretty much every Native group, um, Indigenous people anywhere in the world. The dominant cultures have done their best across generations to eradicate these populations. Mm. And here they are. And they haven't lost their sense of humor. They haven't lost their determination. Um, they haven't lost their, their connection with um, the spiritual um, guidance that they receive from the natural world. Um, they are nothing but absolutely ad admirable in, uh, in how they have conducted themselves in spite of all that we have done, all the travesties that we have visited on them. Um, in my heart is nothing but a great admiration for these folks. 
So that's where I've come <laughs> come to. You know, I grew up yeah. on John Wayne um, and uh, and shooting Indians, and they were the they were the people who they were savages. Savages, right? yeah. And what what I've come to understand as a result of um, the, my friends in the the native community, everything that I have read and and know now about the true relationship that <laughs> that we've had with the the native people here since the first white people set foot on this continent, um, I, I have a much better sense of who really the, uh, the villains are in this whole scenario. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what I try to do in my work is point out to, to white readers who really don't know anything about Native communities is, is that Native people are just people. Yeah. You Simple, know? right? Yeah. Simple you're going to find Ojibwe lawyers and Ojibwe doctors and Ojibwe teachers and Ojibwe nurses and Ojibwe plumbers and Ojibwe electricians and Ojibwe garbage guys. Um, uh, and while it's true that there are Ojibwe men who abuse their, their women and their children who, um, who are lazy, uh, who are addicted to various kinds of substances, there are also white guys who are yeah, sure. their families and who are lazy and who uh, who are addicted to substances. And we don't say it's because they're white guys. Right. You know? Right. <clears throat> most, I, I would say most great novels, particularly the ones that, that we've read um, individually or for the show has something that we could, that people could learn from if they kind of open themselves up to a lesson or two. Did you have anything going into writing this or maybe even thought of after the fact that you wanted people to learn or is there a lesson for us to learn as readers uh, with, with this latest novel? You know, I don't try to teach lessons. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're able to pull a lesson from my story, so much the better. Uh, but I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to end up pedantic. I don't want to end up preaching um i want to tell a really good story and if the story opens your eyes in uh, in ways that maybe they haven't been opened before uh, so much the better amen amen well said. and uh with that uh sean mike let's raise a glass to kent because he's completed our traditional portion of the interview and now we're going to move on to the lightning round where we're going to ask stupid silly questions and hopefully you give us some stupid answers no, wait a minute. You didn't tell me about this. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's, in, it's, in, it's in the contract that you signed. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, David should have told you about it. <laughs> I'm going to get back at that. Guy. Very, 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 very small print. If, if you need help getting back, I'm just let us know we're up for whatever. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks, but, so, Ken, we're, the, we're, the three of us are going to ask you three questions. They're going to be off the wall from left field. It's going to be stupid, at least from our part. Okay. <laughs> so, Here's my first question. Uh, so Henry, the Native American healer in, in, in uh, Fox Creek, uh, he's 105 years old, and he spends his day walking about the forest. Uh, but what if, what if William Kent Kruger were so lucky to live to be 100-plus years old? How would you spend your waning days? Trying to take a good crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, basics. He gets, the he gets the idea. The most honest answer <laughs> in a long time. 
<laughs> I'm going to drink to that because <laughs> I didn't see that one coming in. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right. So the next question is a multiple choice. You can give me a multiple choice answer. All right. According to Ancestry.com, in the 1940s, the top reported job for men named Kruger was A, logger, B, farmer, C, a salesman, or D, a circus employee. When you say logger, is that L-O-G-G-E-R or L-A-G-E-R? Like a, uh, like a you know, chopping timber. Yeah, oh, like chopping timber. Well, I was going with the beer route. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stab at this and say it was, uh, oh, I wish it was farmer, but that's probably not it. It's probably something sleazy like a salesman. <laughs> oh, no, your gut was right. It's farmer. It, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's easy. All right. So, uh, I hope, not, I hope none of you are salespeople. <laughs> no. Oh, no. I, I put that to bed a while ago. I, I didn't say car salesman. Jeez. Uh, all right. So, let's say for argument's sake, there's a multiverse. And in this multiverse, there's a version of you who works in the circus. Um, what job do you think that version of you is doing in the circus? He's the guy that gets shot out of the cannon. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So, I love this. He doesn't. He literally doesn't have to think about any of these. No. Things. <laughs> no, he <laughs> gets it. About it. All right, Sean, you're up. All right. So my first one. What is your favorite Ojibwe word? Um. Oh my gosh. You know the word I use most often, and that most people relate to, is miigwech. It's such a simple word and it's easy to say, as opposed to so much of the Ojibwe language, which has been compared in its difficulty to Mandarin Chinese. Jeez. I mean, quite it's simple, and it and it, it means exactly what it sounds like. Thank you, Miigwech. Oh, hmm. all right, love it. I'm gonna try to pull that out in conversation, see what people do. <laughs> 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 okay, um, as the the resident stand of uh, this tender land. Um, I, I've said often, um, and I've when I gave it to the teachers that I gave it to, I said, this is something you should teach in your literature courses. I think it's that level of book. I think it's the kind of thing that when I read To Kill a Mockingbird in high school, when I read, I wasn't a Grapes of Wrath fan really that much. Um, but when I read the classics that, that resonate with me, that book had that kind of weight to it. So what recent book, and we'll just say last 10 years, that's not your own, um, do you think would be a good literature, uh, like literature class entry. That's not already uh, considered a classic. Well, I mean, well, I mean, if it's last 10 years, you can, you can throw out whatever you think. Oh God, I got to think about this one. Cause I've read a lot of, <laughs> I've read a lot of books in the last 10 years, Sean. Thank you. Very well, much. Is, is anything just like, I mean, <laughs> anything just hit your gut, like, like this Tinderland hit mine. Oh, no. <laughs> Man, I am, I'm really stumped here. No, that's and, okay. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. And, and I'm reluctant to answer it because I have lots of friends who've yeah. done lots of outstanding yeah. work. And okay, here's one. I will give you one. Okay. Yes. One of the finest novels I've read in a very long time won the National Book Award the year it came out, but I think it's a book that's not widely enough read. It's called The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich, okay. and it is a story uh, um, 
about the jurisdictional difficulties that make it so hard in the native community to receive justice. Mm. Awesome. And it's a love, it's just a wonderful family story as well. Well, we'll, we'll make sure we pitch that out there. Uh, my final story, my, my final question is actually really, I'm almost doing this for Mike. Um, what is the best fishing spot in the boundary waters? You know, I'm not a fisherman. Um, and so um, there's a, there's a, a, a place up north called Frank's that has the best fish fry you can possibly imagine. They apparently know where to catch the best fish. I don't. <laughs> 10,000 lakes, baby. There's all kinds of places. <laughs> lakes, yeah. I have been told, I have been told that Lake of the Woods, as far north as you can get, one of the largest lakes in North America, has the best walleye fishing uh, you'll, you'll find anywhere. Yep. That's right. Well, all right, here we go. What would you consider to be your spirit animal? An otter. That's an otter. <laughs> yeah. I've always known that uh, that the otter was my spiritual animal. No kidding. Did that come yeah. to a come to you in a dream or Do you know, it's really funny. I always thought that and then I worked uh, I worked construction for a very long time and uh, on the construction crew we always gave each other nicknames. Out of the blue, the nickname the crew gave me was Otter. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I think it was meant to be. Well, if, if anything ever happens to you with you and your agent, we have an agent for you. <laughs> we do, actually. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, we were going to make T-shirts with that. <laughs> she might have gotten an Otter T-shirt from us. Oh, my gosh. All right. Barbara Powell is a big Otter uh, person. Yeah. So. Yeah. She loves Otters. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, number two. Uh, Henry often disappears into the wilderness, even at his advanced age, for days on end. Um, how long would you survive in the wild if you walked into the woods right now with what you're wearing and what you're carrying? Ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was a Boy Scout. I learned how to survive in the wild. So I can build a, I can build a campfire with uh, flint and steel. Okay. Um, I know how to. I I can. Uh, I can. Um, noodle with uh, with my fingers and catch catfish. Um, I can make a lean-to. I know how to lash together a lean-to. Right. Um, that said, I would probably last 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> There's no Starbucks here. Very, very comfortable 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and only lose just a few pounds. So I don't know. How many of you guys have ever really, I mean, seriously been out in the wilderness on a moonless night? It will scare the crap out. Yeah, of it's you. dark as good gets. Yeah. I'm, a yeah. I'm a city boy. I don't, I don't <laughs> do that. <laughs> All right, last question. Uh, how long would you last in a sweat lodge? Mm. Less than ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a sweat lodge. If you are native, a sweat lodge is uh, an experience uh, of suffering yeah. that you do. Um, as a spiritual uh, journey, it's a spiritual endeavor, wow. and and the harder you can get, the longer you can last, uh, the more spiritual in nature it is for you. I don't have that. Um, you know, I can stand a hot shower for a few minutes, but that's about <laughs> it. But I so greatly respect that tradition in the native community, and I respect the. Um, I respect the philosophy behind it. Incredible. And that and that's how we're gonna end it, folks. Yeah. Let's raise a glass to William Kent Kruger, 
Uh, Fox Creek comes out August 23rd. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't if this is a New York Times bestseller. It's got to be. Uh, there, it's your 19th Mark O'Connor book, as I've been corrected. Uh, written one since the beginning of the show. <laughs> <laughs> the lesson has stayed with him. It, it, it is. Uh, and so, folks, if you haven't if you haven't read William Kent Kruger, go back, go out and get this book. Go out and get all 18 other books, and then his standalones as well. Cheers, sir. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guy. You were you you guys were a blast. Thanks. You fit right in, pal. Thank you much. <laughs> uh, so William Kent Kruger, Kent, as friends and family, and not the crew reviews, but with Kent Kruger. Uh, Fox Creek comes out August twenty third. We loved it. Uh, for readers that don't know, Mr. Kruger, he writes some really fantastic uh, stories. Uh, this is his nineteenth. Court O'Connor story, sure as I that. was told earlier in the story. Uh, so let's raise a glass to number 19. And William Here it is, folks. Over. Get edumacated. <laughs> Cheers. Here. Three men out. Three, two, one, and go. Sean's like, what are you guys talking about? We're talking about the things that you don't want to talk about, Sean. The things you hide from. Yeah, that's right. Mike and I are very open about it. (laughs) And here we are. And this is the outro for William Kent Kruger and Fox Creek. And Chris, his 19th book, not his 18th. Way to go, almost flaming out our interview from the game. That was right right at the beginning. He was like, hey, I don't want to burst your bubble or anything, but you're dumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, right. I, I deserved it. I deserve that. Uh, but Sean, you're not gonna Sean, you're supposed thing. to fact check the things that I write down, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, no? I, I don't. I don't read your stuff anymore. Because no, I, I don't. <laughs> I actually, I think I wrote 19. I think you, when I send you the questions, you like changed it. Well, yeah, yeah. Sure. Somebody's gotta yeah. be the bad guy. Yeah, it's fucking 18. Well, one of these times, I'm just, I'm not even gonna tell you. I'm gonna change like your entire question so it asks something so off the wall, <laughs> like, bizarre. Fuck. <laughs> As I'm reading it, this is your 15th book and it sucked. Oh, what? No! I okay. heard Fox Creek, and here we go. And Chris is back from Corona Monkeypox in really? three, two, and meow.